I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk holy guacamole avocado trade being disrupted. We'll talk digital trade, and we'll talk much, much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, we've had uh, President Biden has extended solar tariffs with some major caveats. What's going on here? I mean, how can we have solar tariffs in the United States? It it was a policy dilemma for him, and I feel sorry for him because it's one of these things that, that kind of happens in trade where there's just a a very clear conflict of objectives. This administration wants to support the domestic industry in a lot of things, including uh, development of clean energy, including development of solar. And the domestic manufacturers have had a hard time because they're being underpriced by China, they would argue, due to subsidies and a host of things. But the reality is they they were being underpriced by China and now by other countries that are incorporating Chinese solar cells into their panels. So it's a number of Southeast Asian countries that are importing in. At the same time, this administration is very interested in transition to clean right. energy. So that this is, Bill, this is really what I don't understand. It's like we're trying to transition to clean energy and we're putting tariffs on some of the very materials that would help us get to a cleaner energy transition. Yes. Well, actually, it's more complicated than that. The administration's other solution to that is if you want to get rid of the tariffs, the other solution is let's just make the American product cheaper. You know, the tariffs make the foreign product more expensive. And he's continuing to do that, although at a lower level than, than the original tariffs. But if you look at uh, Build Back Better and some of the proposals there were proposed uh, substantial subsidies in the solar industry that would go to domestic installations and domestic production. So that's the other way to do it. You know, if you can't make the foreigners more expensive, make the Americans cheaper. Now, subsidies mean you're giving the domestic producers money, which means the taxpayers are paying. So it's not free money. It's money that you and I and everybody else are contributing to make for more solar manufacturing. And they're trying to juggle these competing objectives. And what they did in the immediate case was they continued the tariffs which had already gone down. You know, they started at 30% and by the end of four years had gone down to 15. And for the next four, they're going to hover between 15 and 14. They're going to decline a quarter of a percent per year. So in, in one sense, the tariff relief continues. The domestic industry continues to get a break. But Biden did two other things that are important. He doubled the quantity in terms of output of uh, solar cells, not panels, but cells that could enter the country, which will be advantageous for American manufacturers that want to incorporate foreign cells into their products. And probably more important, he exempted from the tariffs what are called bifacial solar panels, which simply, that's the fancy term for panels that have solar cells on both sides. And that means these are not the ones that go on your roof. Uh, These are the ones that go in large utility scale plants so they can collect the sun all the time as it moves over the horizon, and you know, they can collect it from both sides. So, you know, the utility scale companies continue to buy cheap imported bifacial solar panels. 
And it's kind of a split decision. You know, he gave some relief to the uh, domestic producers, but he was also trying to find ways to accelerate conversion to solar and certainly in the home building industry, but also in, in the utility industry. The, the other footnote to all this, and then I think Scott is going to comment on, on the decision, but the other footnote is that, you know, in the middle of this whole controversy, we got forced labor legislation trying to deal with Uyghurs in Xinjiang province. And it turns out that the main producer of polysilicon, the ingredient of solar cells, is a Chinese company that produces them in Xinjiang. And the Customs and Border Patrol in the U.S. has determined that these are products that have benefited from forced labor. So in the end, we may end up excluding Chinese cells, whether they're coming in Chinese panels or whether they're coming in Vietnamese, Malaysian, or Thai panels, as long as they contain Chinese cells, on forced labor grounds. And the terrorists will not be the biggest obstacle. The forced labor legislation will be the biggest obstacle. Scott, I've got to ask you, what does this say about the Biden administration's strategy to continually split policies down the middle? Is, is this more, you know, the president behaving like a, a senator, which he was for, you know, the majority of his career? Yes. Uh, look, I think it's not so much strategy as it is habit. You can take the politician out of the Senate, but you can't take the Senate out of the politician. That's right. I think that's what we're seeing. And, and you know, 36 years of habit. One of the things about senators is they face many, many issues that statewide will have a split constituency. And mm -hmm. the senators represent states and everyone in that. Everyone I've ever worked with. So it's not a criticism. It's just the nature of the job. There's a, there tends to be hedging goes on among constituencies within the state. And they're trying to find a political balance for themselves that they cannot disappoint every constituent, any constituency all the time or all the constituencies some of the time. So that's, I've seen this a couple of times in the Biden administration where it's, it's somewhat evident as the, for presidential determinations, they're less clear cut than people who have not had that much time in sort of that balancing act that all senators seem to face. So I think that's part of it. But this, this is an issue that has changed since it started. Keep in mind, four years ago, when these, uh, this was put in place under a provision of law called Section 201, which is for fairly traded products. We talk a lot on this program about unfair trade. In this case, there was an injury to the U.S. industry, but the products coming in were not subject to subsidy or sale below cost, what we call dumping. Rather, these were fairly traded products. So the, the let me Chinese, wait, 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 let's amend that. There was not an allegation that they were dumped or something. Right. They, they were not an allegation. They well have been, but this that could, could be. But in, in, in two, 2018, when the Trump administration approved this safeguard action, they were considered fairly traded. So what happens is you have an uncompetitive American industry that can't make the panels as, as cheaply. So they get protection for a period of time, uh, and there's supposed to be, be some level of reform in the industry to get them more competitive. And so extension itself means if there was that reform process, it didn't really work. And I'm not surprised that there's probably a fundamental price or cost difference that still remains. But it is a quandary between getting the lowest cost panels possible and therefore selling more panels or getting American-made panels and having jobs in both panel construction and the panel installation industries. So 
Solomon seemed to have split the baby in half. Maybe I should say Senator Solomon or former Senator Solomon has done done what it, what senators often do. So, so who is this a win for? Is it a win for the U.S. solar producers and a loss for climate change mitigation? Why not allow cheaper imports from China if the effect on jobs would likely be minimal? Well, if you ask if you ask the Biden administration, it's a win for both of them. <laughs> that, that's of course that's it way. is. That, that's the political. That's why they did what they did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'm yeah. not asking the Biden administration. I'm asking the trade guys. <laughs> I think, frankly, because of the forced labor thing, it's going to end up being a win for the domestic manufacturers because we're going to end up keeping Chinese solar cells out on forced labor grounds, which has nothing to do with this particular decision or particular case. It's sort of separate. But, you know, the United States government and Congress has passed a law on this, but I think a lot of people would agree this is sort of a moral issues intruding into trade, but people will agree that that working with uh, companies that engage in forced labor in order to produce their products is a bad thing, and that the proper response to that is not to buy their products. That's going to help the domestic solar industry more than anything else, I think. Well, I, you're probably right, Bill. I would just point out on behalf of the taxpayers who listen to our program that Adding taxpayer subsidies doesn't make the panels less expensive overall. There's just someone else picking up part of the tab. Well, right. I mean, to me, we we, we did a paper on this in the fall. We were trying to figure out, this was before the decision, we were trying to figure out what's going to happen. And, and we realized that, that, you know, if you continue the tariffs, what you're going to do potentially is, is what Andrew uh, alluded to, which is you might slow down the transition to solar because you're going to have more expensive panels. Because the U.S. panels are more expensive because they cost more, labor costs are higher, and the foreign panels cost more because of the tariffs. And it was sort of a classic solution. We want to keep the tariffs because we want to keep the domestic industry happy. But, you know, at the same time, we don't want to slow down the transition to solar. So let's have subsidies that will lower the price of the American product. This is what happens when you mess with the market. There's all these downstream consequences. So it just keeps building. You know, we've, we've made the foreign panels more expensive. So now we compensate. Let's make the American panels cheaper. That legislation hasn't passed and that provision may never make it. We'll see. But one thing it does, I mean, if I were a conservative Republican, I, and I'm not, but if I were, I'd be pounding the table and say, this is just government intrusion into the marketplace. And, you know, the government is sort of playing both ends of this. Now they're making the foreigners uh, more expensive and they're making the, the Americans more expensive too. And then they're making the taxpayers pay for that. And it's the innocent, quasi-innocent taxpayers like you and me and Scott. And look, this is a great deal for the government because they're collecting the tariffs on the imported panels and they're collecting the taxes that go to the subsidies. So uh, it's, uh, it's good to be king. Speaking of king, you know, I've been alerted to an issue that like I just did not know was happening. On Super Bowl Eve, arguably guacamole's biggest night. The United States suspended avocado imports from Mexico. Gentlemen, all I can say is, holy guacamole, what is going on here? What a catastrophe. Well, fortunately for all of us, it didn't affect guacamole on Super Bowl Sunday. The action came after those avocados had already been imported uh, and sold. So they're they're trying to ruin March Madness now, too? Uh, it'll, it'll bite if you, uh, no pun intended end of the month, probably early March, if they don't change anything. Yeah. Okay. The, guys, this is egregious as a huge fan of the avocado 
to learn about this on Super Bowl Eve. There is even a, a Super Bowl ad. You may have caught a commercial for avocados from Mexico, the marketing arm of the business organizations that represent you as importers of avocados from Mexico. The spot actually implored viewers to use avocados from Mexico at tailgate parties because, quote unquote, they're always good. Of course, they're always good. They're avocados from Mexico. And if I'm not mistaken, we get most of our avocados from Mexico these days, not from California. Yes. Well, very large share of the imports are from Mexico. And in fact, the incident that led to the stoppage happened in a Mexican state where there's a very close relationship between the U.S. Department of Agriculture's plant health inspection services, which make sure the products that do come in are safe, and the growers themselves. This is actually a, an interesting government operation that helps create, for me, one of the daily miracles of the market, which is your produce section at the local grocery store. There's an unbelievable amount of coordination among producers and importers to keep fresh fruits and vegetables in your grocery store year-round. That's avocados and everything else. In the case of avocados, because of the volume and importance of Mexican imports to year-round avocado sales in the United States is that this close relationship in, in this Mexican state that, that uh, I've forgot, forgotten which state it is now, but there's one where they- I think it's Michoacan, right? Yes, yeah. that's right. Where it's close coupling. And what, what led to the stoppage was a, was a threatening phone call received by one of the U.S. inspectors. So I don't know, have any of the background on the call. They stopped it to do an investigation. But Bill may have more information on whether it was a call or something more sinister. It was a threatening call. It points out something that people don't usually think about. We have, it's called APHIS, I think, the Agriculture Public Health Inspection Service. They're actually all over the world. Yes. Uh, looking at uh, mostly uh, produce and other things to make sure they meet American health standards before we let them in. People take all this stuff for granted, you know, and, and sometimes we'll have a listeria outbreak or something. And just, then you have to a very long, complicated process of tracing things back, trying to figure out where it came from and isolating it. This is a big issue right now with potatoes, which is not a Super Bowl. Well, actually, fries are probably a Super Bowl issue as well. But there was a, 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 a potato wart outbreak. Now they're going to cut off French fries? We're going to cut off Canadian fries because the outbreak was on Prince Edward Island. And the Canadian government actually took the first step before the Americans could. They prohibited the export of Prince Edward Island potatoes because of a potato wart outbreak. They did it because they anticipated the Americans were going to do it. And that's now in the process of being resolved. But what it means is you have to send the inspectors out to potato fields on Prince Edward Island to see if they've done anything about potato wart. But, you know, for people that don't think too much about their food, there's a whole network of government officials, both in the U.S. and overseas, making sure your food is safe. And sometimes it's not. And that's when we run into a case like this. I think the, the, the Mexican case was unusual because it was basically a threatening American inspector, which suggests that, you know, they didn't want, whoever it was, did not want the inspection to be held. And the, the U.S. Department of Agriculture response was to suspend the imports, which is a fairly drastic response. But, you know, if you look at our rules, you can't inspect, then you can't certify that they're good. And right. if you can't certify they're good, we're not going to let them in. Okay, guys, but all that aside, I just got to tell you, I'm on the verge of a nervous breakdown here because if you take away my guacamole and you take away my french fries, the next thing they're going to come for our ketchup 
Like, you know, that's come on. This is un-American. You're right. Uh, you're right to highlight the risks. And uh, but I think, <laughs> but I, <laughs> I mean, you guys are making me nervous here. Thanks to the Florida tomato growers, your ketchup is probably American. But uh, last time I checked, my ketchup was produced in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, at a little company called Heinz, as it should be. And and you know, I I mean, guys, like this is. What are they going to do next? Well, look, food safety is a very important issue because uh, while we love seeing that produce section, we also love keeping our families safe. And so, uh, yes, uh, sir, that is true. And look, uh, everybody, everybody wants that produce section. You don't want to go back to the way things were when I was a kid, where you had strawberries in May because that's when they were in season, and they, they weren't in the store otherwise, except in cans. So we we should both be grateful for it and 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 assist where we can to keep this this bounty that we see every every time we walk into the store. So the, this begs the question, does the United States need to plant more avocado trees or are we going to figure out a compromise here? Well, let's see, let the investigation take place. Mexico seems to do a great job with the avocados. So uh, we don't know who placed the call. We don't know what it was. We don't know whether there was a, something else behind it. So I think we've just got to trust the Authorities who are doing the investigation and and uh, see where the uh, situation lands. Well, I, I will tell you guys on this program going forward, we are going to be constantly checking in on Guacamole Gate, and you, you heard it here first. It's Guacamole Gate. Well, and for those of you that are millennials or Gen Z out there, it's not your guacamole, but it's your avocado toast that's at risk. Oh yeah. Well, so you guys know this, but I, you know, I have three football playing sons. And my middle is a vegetarian. He relies on guacamole and on on avocados. Like avocado is a big part of his diet. So we're going to be watching this space close. This is this is personal, gentlemen. This is personal. Speaking of personal, Scott, we didn't get a chance to mourn the loss of the Bayou Bengals. Although congratulations to the LA Rams, Aaron Donald, Matthew Stafford, Cooper Cup, Von Miller. Great team. Uh, poor Odell Beckham tore his, his knee, uh, had a pretty hell, heck of, hell of a first half. Uh, we we do hope Joe Burrow, uh, wish Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase and those guys all the best. And, you know, hopefully uh, they'll, they'll be back. Not at the expense of my Baltimore Ravens, of course, but they put in a good effort. Let's acknowledge the turnaround that's taken place by the Cincinnati Bengals. Yes, absolutely. The team won six games total. That's right. Uh, so this is this is an impressive turnaround, a great run through the playoffs. Um, as an old Cleveland Browns fan, uh, I mentioned to Andrew earlier that uh, I do hope they were they draft somebody who can block for Joe Burrow because <laughs> Bernie Kosar never had anybody everybody block for him over the years. That and, is for sure. That so, is but, for uh, sure. There's there's a there's a bright future there, and and uh, congratulations to uh, uh, to the Bengals as well. It wasn't the most exciting Super Bowl, given the exciting playoffs we had, but the last few minutes were pretty cool, and the halftime show was great, and just great to see people out there enjoying, and, and you know, as the pandemic seems to be receding a bit, um, you know, American... We had a whole playoff schedule of close games, which was that's right. whole, think, whole very satisfying game. for a lot, of, a lot of us who like competition. No, I can't recall a blowout in, in that's the right. that's NFL right. playoffs. We had a heck of a season, and the off season starts very shortly as free agency picks up in March, and then we got the draft. But we will talk about that going forward. One last thing I want to bring up, guys, is the digital trade vision 
that the U.S. Chamber has released a report urging that the United States must, quote, must act quickly to negotiate a digital trade agreement with key partners, specifically citing the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. What do you guys think of this? We have a few minutes, and, and I just thought we would talk about why is digital trade so important? Well, these are key sources of future growth for the U.S. economy. It's the U.S. companies are the major players throughout the, uh, the digital economy. We essentially invented it and developed it here. But when it comes to regulatory schemes, our foreign partners are doing us no favors at this point. Probably the, the worst circumstances in Europe, the Digital Markets Act has a section on regulating what they call gatekeeper platforms. And it just so happens that all the companies that get regulated, for the most part, are American companies. They wrote the rules in such a way that, that at least on a de facto basis, it could be argued to conclusion that it is discriminatory against U.S. companies. It's not just the EU. France has a cloud services regulation that it's working through where they'll have trusted operators. Turns out it's the local operators who are trusted. So worldwide, I think the U.S., from a technology standpoint, leads the world in the digital economy. The U.S., from a regulatory standpoint, is getting lapped. That's, I think, what the Chamber is saying in a nutshell. Bill's worked on these issues a long time as well, but we're, we're falling behind. Yeah, what's up, Bill? It's important because really all companies are digital now. I mean, that's what's happening. Right. This is the way. Yeah, they, of course. This is the way they maintain their inventory. This is the way they run their companies. And so many products are software-based. I first thought about this when I was at the National Foreign Trade Council talking to one of my board members who was from an automobile company. So we had, I think, all the big ones as members. And he said, you know, what is a car these days? Basically, it's a computer on wheels. And he's right. As it drives the car. It doesn't just run the entertainment system. Something goes wrong with your car and you take it in for repairs. The first thing that happens is, you know, a technician plugs a diagnostic tool into the car and checks the computer, which analyzes what's wrong. We live in a digital economy and the ability to move data around and to transmit data is absolutely essential to the functioning of the economy. And what we're running into now is a growing number of disputes over the extent to which that can happen and how it can happen. Now, the two biggest issues that the United States has consistently pressed for are and where we run into opposition, just flat out opposition from China and run into a different point of view in a different way from, from the Europeans is one, to commit to the free flow of data. So countries should not be able to block the transmission of data across borders. China doesn't agree to that because they want to control data inside their country. They want to control their citizens' access to data, including movies, you know, and the internet. This is why, you know, a number of the big Western internet service providers have dropped out of China because they can't function. The other big one is prohibition on what's called data localization, which means the government's requirement that the data you develop in Turkey has to stay in Turkey. It cannot be shipped outside of Turkey without permission. Uh, the European Privacy Regulation, called GDPR, the General Data Privacy Regulation, does uh, essentially sort of the same thing. You can't move data out of Europe, particularly data about individuals, unless you have conformed to a bunch of restrictions that they put into place. And there are a number of European, two in particular European court rulings that have deemed U.S. protections on the data when they receive it as inadequate. And so that threatens the transmission of data across the Atlantic. It's already threatened in a lot of other countries who seem to regard data like a physical thing and say, 
we're all better off if we keep it here, you know, and don't let the other countries have it. Well, if you're a bank, which is probably the most obvious case, your ability to transmit data about your loans and deposits across borders back to your central facility is essential to your ability to operate. It's an enormous economy of scale. And when countries tell you you can't do that, you have to keep all your data about Turkish depositors in Turkey, you're making it very difficult for multinational institutions to operate. So what the U.S. is trying to do is get common agreement, particularly on those two things. There's a host of other things. You know, there, there's a huge long list that also includes things like getting a common agreement on how to operate digital signatures, for example, so that they're recognized in multiple companies, making sure that countries don't discriminate against the treatment of digital products in different countries, prohibiting customs duties on digital products that are distributed electronically. So if you're selling video games over the internet, not having to pay a tax on them in the, in the country of receipt is good. Prohibiting countries from requiring the disclosure of proprietary computer source code and proprietary algorithms, which is what the Chinese are f- famous for. You know, we'll let you in if you give us your source code. And they say, you give us your source code. And what they don't tell you is we will then copy your source code and set up a company that's going to compete with you. Having rules in the digital space is important to stop all that from happening. And it's going on. There's a WTO discussion that involves 75 countries trying to develop all the the rules and all the stuff I just talked about. They've actually succeeded on the low-hanging fruit, like digital signatures. I don't think they've made any progress on the two big ones, data localization, free flow of data. But the need to do that is clear. And if you don't do that, what you get is a fragmented internet. Where, or where, somebody else's rules. And uh, well, yeah, I, we got to fight the rules. Neither, neither one is advantageous to the US. So it's time to get going. That's for sure. Meta has even said that it could shut down Facebook and Instagram in Europe over this dispute. So this is, this is pretty serious. Yes. And look, the, those platform companies, the whole benefit of them is, is scale. When you start to have these regulatory patchwork quilts that reduces scale in dramatic ways, then the whole enterprise is kind of less useful to the world. So, The argument of, the, of our companies against the Europeans has been exactly what Scott said, that the way they've drafted their Digital Markets Act, currently, it may change. It only affects a handful of companies, almost all of which are American. And lately, the debate has taken on a, a new turn because you know the Europeans say, well, we don't have European Facebooks, we don't have European Googles, uh, we're going after the big guys. But what we do have are Chinese Facebooks and Googles. We have Alibaba, you know, we have Weibo and the companies like that. And they're not covered by the European legislation as it stands now because they're not big enough. So one of the concerns that our companies have expressed, which I think is valid, is that if Europe goes ahead with what they're planning, they're going to, you know, tie Facebook, Google, Amazon, et cetera's armed behind their back while letting their Chinese competitors have free reign, which is not good for us on multiple levels. And I think ultimately would not be good for Europe either. Not good at all. All right. Well, I hate to end on a a bit of a depressing note, but, you know, hopefully we'll get our guacamoles, our our avocados back and our guacamole back and our French fries won't be disrupted and neither will will our digital trade. My goodness, trade guys, we've had a a mouthful today to to handle here. No problem. That's why we still do a weekly program, I guess. That's right. (laughs) But you've you've shown your priorities clearly, uh, Andrew. You know, food is more important than software. So we know where you you stand. 
Bill, I will tell you, French fries have been important to me for a very, very long time and will continue to be, you know, so we'll, we'll to be to be continued. Bill and I are old enough to have lived decades without software, but never yeah. a day or two without food. And it shows. There you Trust go. me. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Gentlemen, as always, a pleasure. And we'll see you next week. Same time, same channel on The Trade Guys. See you then. Bye-bye. To our listeners, if you have a question for The Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have The Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.